All right, hello. Welcome to a very special edition of Riot Act, the alternative music podcast with me, Stephen Hill, and I'm joined by a very special guest today. I'm delighted and um, very excited, I have to say, to be joined by Mr. Stephen Wilson. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Hello. I'm very, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's quite all right. Um, we're going to be talking about your brand new album, The Future Bites, um, which I believe was going to be coming out last year and was finished and ready to go last year so before we kind of get into it um this whole thing what we're just going through right now which i'm sure everyone's probably sick of talking about but i feel like we kind of have to talk about it just for a bit of context how frustrating has the global pandemic been for you and your you know your kind of plans on this earth Pretty frustrating. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, it's funny, we're, we're sitting here talking in 2021. This album was made in 2019. Mm. And wow. It, yeah, I mean, okay, it was finished in December 2019. <laughs> but still, it's, uh, it's a long time to, to be finishing, finishing a record and then kind of sitting on it, not being able to share it, you know, with the world and with the, with the fans. So um, listen, of course, I'm very, I'm still very proud of the record. I'm very happy it's coming out. One of the plus sides of the delay was I actually had a little bit of perspective on the album rather mm. than, you know, normally in a situation where you make a record, you kind of finish it one day and then the next day you've delivered it to the record company and it's already in, in the kind of machinery. It means it's going to be produced and manufactured and all that. And you don't really normally have any time to reflect on what you've done and kind of mm. have that kind of objective perspective on it. I mean, 18 months of demoing you know writing demoing recording mixing mastering and by the end of the t you know by the time you finish the record you're sick of it at least I am I'm sick of hearing the damn thing so it was really nice this time to be able to step away from it by virtue of of the lockdown and the pandemic situation yeah. to step away from it for six months not even think about it or listen to it and then in June or July last year I sat down and I had to listen to the test pressing of the record and actually, I was able to hear it as music and not a science mm. project <laughs> because, it, you know, it does. Be, once you've been working on something for so long, you're, you're not hearing music anymore. You're hearing, oh, has the hi-hat got enough top end on it? Or is that backing vocal too far over to the left of the stereo? You're not hearing music anymore. You're hearing it like a technical, you know, like I say, like a science project. So to be yeah. able to listen to it as music and and actually make a few adjustments to the album. I actually changed one track. I took one track off and replaced it with another one. I changed the order slightly. Never having had the opportunity to do that in the past. So that was a that was a positive I took from from having a little bit of time to reflect on the album. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean obviously when we go back to To the Bone which was the album prior to this one. I think um I mean just to, just to let you know in what what's happening here with, with this particular interview basically there's two of us that do the show one of us really likes kind of post-rock and progressive rock and the other one of us really likes 80s pop now i'm the one who really likes 80s pop and you were going to get the one who likes prog rock until we heard the record and he was a bit like i think you'd be much better oh, wow. in this conversation okay yeah that's interesting so that's kind of yeah that's kind of where we were i think it, you know to the bone obviously was uh, a record which having listened to it i felt certainly leaned a little bit further in towards a more instantaneous type of songwriting if, if yeah, that's yeah, fair yeah. to say I yeah. think you kind of probably know where I'm going with this um and I feel like you've kind of 
push that even further on this record this time. Is that fair? I think there's been other changes too. The the difference between To The Bone and The Future Bites, I mean, you're right in, in one obviously very strong respect is that I was moving more towards a, what you might call a pop sensibility um, mm. with To The Bone. And The Future Bites certainly continues that. The major difference between the two for me is that the Future Bites feels like it could only have been made now. And To The Bone was more nostalgic for, in fact, for the very thing you've just mentioned, for 80s pop, um, Mm. which is my era. You know, I grew up in the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s. I actually became a teenager in, literally in 1980, I became a teenager. I was 13 later on in that year. So I lived through the 80s as a teenager. I discovered a lot of the music that means a lot to me in that era. And To The Bone was kind of my homage to that era. Yeah. Specifically stuff like Talk Talk and Tears for Fears and, uh, you know, those kind of great, what you might call sophisticated pop uh, acts of that era. Prince, Mm. of course, also was a big one for me. And The Future Bites very deliberately was an album where I tried my best to avoid any sense of looking back to the past. The pop sensibility is still there, for sure. The songs are accessible albeit no less sophisticated, uh, I hope, uh, no less layered and ambitious. But there is more of a sense of nowness about it, I think. At least I hope, at least I I like to think that. It feels like, like I say, it feels like it could only have been made in, well, in fact, in 2019, which is already already nostalgia in that respect, isn't it? But, But it feels like it's much more of this era, shall we say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I've always liked about and enjoyed my own kind of personal variant of your music that I particularly like is when there's kind of a a look towards a sort of dystopian future but with a real sense of immediacy and you know and a melodious nature to it and I think that kind of um tackling those quite weighty subjects but tackling them with such a a sort of instantaneous way is something that I've always thought I'd love to hear a whole album of that. I mean, when I think back to some of my favourite stuff from you did, that you did with Porcupine Tree, a lot of it is usually the stuff which grabs me straight away. And I know it kind of seems odd to say that um, when you think about what progressive music and prog rock is meant to be. But I've, I personally have, I feel like I've been waiting a long time to hear an album which is so popular. Like I feel like this is, you know, I, I'm if people think that pop music's an, an insult or whatever. I mean, I'm, I absolutely don't use it as an no, insult. No, I mean, neither. It's, at, it's a glorious uh, those thing. artists you've mentioned. Yeah. No, no, from Kate Bush and Tangerine mm. Dream, Talk Talk, all the stuff that you're talking mm. about before. Um, I absolutely love that stuff. And so this for me is like a, just a joyous album for me to hear, to be perfectly honest. And I think it does sound really contemporary whilst reminding me a lot of stuff that, again, that I probably grew up, seeing on top of the pops or whatever mm. and first got me into to music as well well i mean firstly thank you for saying that i mean uh, you know that's kind of music to my ears if you'll pardon the pun um but <laughs> it you kind of get to the number of it there in a sec i've never thought of myself it's interesting you described you know you and your partner as one of you likes progressive rock and post rock and the other likes 80s pop i've never thought of myself as someone who belonged necessarily to a genre so I've never thought of yeah. myself as a generic artist. And it's been other people that have told me that I play progressive rock. And 
I'm one of those people, you know, the funny thing is, I don't know how much you know about my very early part of my career, but my first professional gig, if you like, my first professional band, the first band that got signed to a record label, the first band that got a publishing deal was a synth pop group called No Man. And Porcupine Tree was this little side project I did in my studio for fun that was deliberately kind of nostalgic for... 60s and 70s and I thought my career was going to be in no man because we got we got tremendous press at the beginning of our career which unfortunately never really translated into record sales and a fan base but we got tremendous press and and that was what I thought was going to give me a career as a professional musician in the music industry and it didn't happen but nevertheless the point I'm making is that that side of me has always been there and it's interesting you mentioned that the even with porcupine tree which is essentially known as a more conceptual progressive rock group had these moments of pure pop and Mm. these songs, which were very immediate, very accessible, very direct. And it's funny. People forget that sometimes, you know, the people who are shocked that I've made a pop record, forget that there was always pop moments on my records. And I started out professionally in a pop group um, and Mm. have continued to be, in love with the notion of pop. When I was a kid, Prince was the guy that was on my my bedroom wall. You know, he yeah. was my idol. Still is, in many respects, my idol. Still is the person I think is the most naturally gifted, you know, pop musician the world of music has ever produced. You know, and I aspire to be someone in the vein. I mean, you mentioned Kate Bush. Um, we can add people like uh, Bowie, obviously, to the list. Uh, Neil Young, aspire to be someone who doesn't belong to a genre, but creates their own musical universe in which they can potentially do anything. And that's what I always dreamed of being. And so this whole thing about me being, you know, somehow a progressive rock artist, I've always, I've always kind of refuted that. In fact, I've always said that if you call yourself progressive rock, if you say that what you do is progressive rock, then you probably don't because the whole (laughs) idea, the whole idea that progressive rock can become a genre, which has a set of parameters within which you work is kind of anathema to the whole term progressive, isn't it? So yeah, I I always say, if you say you play progressive rock, then you don't, but if you just create your own musical universe, like a Kate Bush or a Peter Gabriel or a Mark Hollis or whatever it should do, that's truly progressive. Hmm. I mean, I actually, I saw, picking up on that point, I saw an interview that you did recently where you talked about the dark side of the moon and how you kind of didn't view that as a prog rock album because, you know, I think you mentioned Money and The Great Gig in the Sky, like The Great Gig in the Sky being like a gospel song and Money being a kind of... A funky song. Like a, a, yeah, funk song. And you do go, yeah, in kind of in isolation, the idea of, like, I mean, I was going to sort of talk to you about this towards the end, but we're here now, so we might as well continue down this little straza. But... um I was I was interviewing a a, a a prog metal band last week and I won't say who they were because you know but they're fair and and I was like do you consider yourselves a progressive band because I just kind of hear a lot of the tropes of um I probably wasn't this blatant about it but I said you kind of I hear a lot of the tropes of what prog metal is now meant to sound like post Opeth post Meshuga it's not really been anything that's happened that isn't just when it becomes a a sign of a son, like you say, a sonic template, then that's not really what progressive music is meant to be 
about at all, is it really? Absolutely. And, and I think that's, that's the, there's the contradiction in terms of, of progressive and most of the music. It's the same thing that happened with punk. You know, a punk became a musical template. It was no longer about the spirit of what punk was supposed to be. It was simply what punk ultimately meant was to sound like the Sex Pistols or the Buzzcocks circa 1978. <laughs> and a lot yeah, of yeah. progressive music and progressive metal is ultimately to sound like Opeth circa Blackwater Park or Dream, Th- Dream Theatre circa, I don't know any of their albums, I'm not a fan, but anyway, whatever their sound is. So yeah. it became a it became a blueprint rather than a, a, um, a kind of spirit to the music. And Pink Floyd is, a, is always the mo- poster child f- for this for me because Dark Side of the Moon, or I should say that album is the poster child for this because, yes, if you take any song out of context, like if you take On the Run out of context, it's a piece of electronica. Has nothing mm. to do with rock music at all. It's just electronic yeah, music, yeah. Uh, money, funk, got a gig in the sky, gospel, um, and the the progressive aspect is actually in the way it is sequenced and constructed. It's the idea of taking the listener on a journey across an album. That for me is the only trope I would ever say. I adhere to with progressive rock. And it's the only one I really, truly love is the idea mm. that an album can be a listening experience analogous with a movie or a novel, and you can really take the listener on this journey. And I think that's one of the great, that's a wonderful thing about that particular genre, but the rest you can just throw away. Um, and and Alicia should be able to throw it away and try then to create your own musical universe still make a, a yeah. great kind of piece of cinema for the years but and i suppose that's been my philosophy particularly on the last the last couple of records yeah mm. is it frustrating for you i mean I, I i i often wonder with artists such as yourself if you ever i was gonna say if you ever consider your fan base but i guess rather than considering your fan base do you as in do you ever i'm, I'm sure you don't sit down and go oh i'm sure the, the you know the guys at prog whatever are going to love this if i do that but do you ever sort of think to yourself i mean do you ever consider your i guess that's it do you ever consider what your fan base may or may not think about a piece of music you're writing i consider my fan base a a uh, an obstacle to overcome <laughs> i don't i and I, I i'm being slightly facetious but let me explain there is there is some uh there is some serious point to make about this fans are amazing. Obviously, without fans, I would sell no records and I would have no career and I wouldn't be able to conduct a career as a professional musician. But fans also have a tendency, not all, not all, but a lot of them have a tendency to want the same thing over and over again. And what happens is that a fan, when you make a fan, it's because that, that person has walked through a particular door into your musical universe and fallen in love with your music. And it's usually a particular album or a particular period in your career that they, that's the, that's the door they walk through and they become a fan. Mm. Most of the rest of the time they spend following you, they're kind of waiting for you to give them that same thrill again. And that getting that thrill again becomes really about hearing something that reminds them of what they first, first fell in love with. Yeah. Now that, in some ways, is the biggest obstacle to overcome for any artist with a uh, a loyal fan base, and I and I have a I have a very um, loyal fan base. I mean, they've stuck with me through a lot of years, and I push them around with different styles, and they've mostly come to me through word of mouth because I've never been a you know mainstream. I've never been 
accessible within mainstream pop culture. You won't see me on TV. You won't see me on the. You won't hear me on the radio. So most people that have come to me have come to me through in a very kind of organic way, and so the bond is even stronger in that sense between the, the artist and, and the listener. I won't. I won't actually call them fans. It's slightly patronising for listener. The listeners, and. Um, I have to, I find I have to, in order to be true to myself, I have to do two things. Number one, so this answers your, your question, really. I have to not think about my fans or what they expect or my listeners or what they expect from me at all when I'm making a record. Because that way, I feel like I'm becoming an entertainer and not an artist. In other words, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to give people what they want rather than what I feel I have to somehow, with the risk of sounding pretentious, draw from my soul, you know? So yeah. um, it, it, so that's the number one. The second thing is that I've come to realise over the years that if I'm upsetting some of my fan base, it means I've done the right thing because it means I've confronted their expectations. I'm not mm -hmm. simply giving them more of the same. And I truly believe that if music is of a high quality, most people ultimately can enjoy it, whether it's what they expected or not. Now, I understand mm. I have a few people. I think they are a minority. I have a minority of people in my listening uh, base that only want to hear what I would call old-fashioned progressive rock. This record is not for them. And they will complain. They'll tell me I'm making bad music. All that stuff that I know is not true. It's not bad music. It's just not what they wanted. Um, mm. But I actually think the majority of my fan base, even if they've come to my music through generic progressive rock or progressive metal or whatever it is, most people have an open mind, particularly with an artist they already have respect for. And if they understand the artist has integrity and does things with integrity, and I hope at least all of my listeners understand that about me, then they will give it a chance and they will actually grow to really love it. I really believe that about, about this record. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, I, I have to say that, you know, speaking to someone who has been a fan of Porcupine Tree for a really, really long time, I mean, maybe it's because of the things that I like as well, um, is why I like this album so much. But I was... I mean, I was I was genuinely quite shocked by how it sounded. And I think that's a great thing. Not shocked in a shocked in a, a you know reviled revolt like how dare you right. shock me and how dare right. you try and make this type of music but i was there are some things on it which i probably couldn't have seen coming and i'm sort of delighted that i couldn't see them see them coming to be perfectly honest because um i think that's a great thing when you've been listening to someone's music for decades or whatever and they can still make you go oh well done where did this come from i think that's that's awesome. Exactly. And I think, I think, I think that's the problem ultimately with, with continuing to give people what they want is that even mm. the people that think that's what they want will get bored at some point. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's kind of another version of what we've already got. It's another version. It's another version. Another version. I remember when I was a kid buying records and, and, you know, obviously in the days before the internet, there wasn't really the opportunity to, to, to realise what an artist was going to do with a record until you actually got it home and put it on the turntable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, you might hear the single, but that was it. So I remember being thrilled going down to my local Our Price Records and buying the new Kate Bush album or, you know, whatever it was and not knowing what to expect when I put it on the turntable and being genuinely um, 
surprised in a good way and transported in a good way and just it just made the artist go up even more in my estimation i remember getting spirit of eden by talk talk and who could have expected that after color of spring you know a complete reinvention and not being quite sure to begin with you know i think that's part of it too it's like sometimes you put it on the first time oh i'm not sure about this not sure if i like this not what i was expecting but then something about it fascinates you and because you believe in the artist and you you believe the artist does things with integrity you go back and you listen a second a third a fourth time and then you just come out thinking now i get it this is genius or this guy's a genius. I'm not suggesting I'm a genius, by the way, but, but that's the experience I had when I, <laughs> that's the experience I had when I would, you know, when I would follow the artists I loved when I was a kid, you know, not knowing what Prince was going to do next. Um, not knowing what Bowie was going to do next. You know, nobody knew what Bowie was going to mm-hmm. do next. And, and right. I love that. And it made me love the artists more. And I think this goes back to your original point. I think it also gave those acts more longevity because yeah. there is the law of diminishing returns when you keep making the same record over and mm. over again. Um, yeah. And you just don't really move out of your established musical parameters. I think it's interesting that all of the bands that you've mentioned there are all fa- like fantastic examples. I was about to say, can you imagine if, you know, when David Barry released Station to Station or Low, what Twitter would have done Absolutely. when they first heard yeah. it? Well, that's I think in- that's something which is plays into a lot of why artists are so conservative um, yeah kind of, yeah and, and crippled by the idea of doing something new because you will get an instant reaction and that is the only reaction you will get from a lot of people you know people are quick to just shut it down absolutely no you've hit the nail on the head these days someone like bowie would have an would you know everything they do would be instantly there'll be an instant wave of negativity to it um within five minutes you know within five minutes of posting a new song or a new video you have this wave of reaction positive and negative and you have to tune that out. Um, I have to tune that out all the time because people have very immediate knee-jerk reactions to things. And I think to myself, most of the music I really love, I didn't necessarily even like it the first time I heard it. And, yeah, that's true. and so the world of social media is one of immediacy and react, you know, reacting immediately to things. And people mm. do that all the time. And, and, I, and I just have to be patient. And I believe this album... Um, is ultimately going to, you know, going to go down very well with most people. Yeah, I have to believe that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of that, as we were of, um, I guess, the kind of thematic and conceptual ideas that uh, that are kind of posted on this record, um, particularly you yourself, I think, for a long time in your career have definitely touched on the idea of a sort of dystopian future or, you know, what the world will look like at, at some point in the future. And, and I feel like, I feel like we may well have reached that point now. I mean, is it weird for you to be creating an album set in the future that you've been kind of talking about for a long time? Yeah, it's funny. I was talking about this earlier um, on another interview. There was a song on an album I made many years ago called Signify, called Every Home Mm. is Wired, 1996. So I've been talking about this for 25 years. Uh, That's that's how ahead of my time I am, folks. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So it... Yeah, I mean, the the whole idea, I mean, I remember when I was a kid reading um, a lot of science fiction uh, novels, most of which were written in the middle of the 20th century. You know, you think of the, you know, the, the classic science fiction books by people like Arthur C. Clarke and Philip K. Dick and those kind of guys. Mm. They're writing most of their fiction in the, in the, in the mid 20th century, the 50s and the 60s. And so much of it is about 
the future being one where human beings would become enslaved to the technology they'd created. And I think the only mm. difference between what they were writing about and what's actually transpired is that they imagined it would be robots walking around that looked like us. And of course, it's yeah. not. It's the internet and it's social media. And we are completely enslaved to it. And it does begin to dictate our behavior. Algorithms constantly are analyzing uh, you know, our internet footprint and using it against us to make us buy things, believe things, listen to things, watch things, vote for people. And this is the world we live in, where we are essentially enslaved to the technology that we have created. And I can't think of any other greater definition of the word dystopia than, than that very yeah. definition. Hmm. It feels like this record is... Because, I mean, when I think back to the previous times if i go back sort of 15 16 20 years even from when you've been talking about this sort of stuff before in your lyrics they always felt quite angry or they were warnings or they were quite quite dark um ideas of this stuff whereas this record dare i say it, it almost feels like you're going oh yeah well we're in it now so we might as well just kind of accept it i guess i don't know about that but i i think what you might be picking up on is that there is a sense of a sense of joy on this record too. And that is unusual mm. for me. And part <laughs> of that is because I think I acknowledge to myself that even though I might have criticisms about the world that we live in and the way that social media particularly has altered, you know, the path of human evolution, I don't think that's overstating it to say that. There's no doubt in my mind that the internet has altered the path of human evolution. There's also a lot of stuff I love about it. You know, I mean, Personal Shopper, one of the one of the key songs on the record, which is essentially about, you know, consumerism and people think, you know, oh, Steve Morrison is criticizing consumerism. Well, I am and I'm not. I mean, I love shopping. Who doesn't love shopping? Mm. You know, I love mm. and I love the fact that a lot of the things that we shop for are things that we don't need, but they're fun to buy, you know. Deluxe yeah. edition. I mean, you think of that list that Elton John reads out in the middle of that song. Deluxe edition box sets, 180 gram vinyl reissues. That's my world. These are the things yeah. I love. I get involved in somebody. So it's a it's a very kind of affectionate in a way. Look, it's a love letter. I call it a love letter to consumerism. But mm. at the same time, there is also obviously a recognition of the darker aspects of modern consumerism, particularly e-commerce and the way that mm. algorithms are constantly manipulating us and persuading us to buy things that we don't really need. So it's it's a kind of it has a kind of dualism to it of, of sort of half of it is um, loving the world of technology that we live in now and the other half of me thinking it's possibly the worst thing that's ever happened to the human race so um, <laughs> at least since the Holocaust so uh, so it's um it's a slightly um, I suppose it's a slightly um, schizophrenic record in that sense but there is there is also a sense of joy. Uh, about mm. the world li we live in. It's not just a dark... Because I think it would be a very miserable record if it was just that, yeah. Well, it doesn't feel like it's... I mean, so many records that you hear now that talk about this thing on Touch of This sort of thing, uh, it just sort of feels like people are pointing their fingers at you and sort of prodding you and going, stop being like this. Well, I'll tell you... Like one, this, sort, one of the, sort yeah, the one world of, out now and it doesn't feel like that. What, yeah, absolutely. One of the things a real bugbear uh, I have is people who basically um, say 
appear to be saying everything, but they're actually saying nothing. It's like they're asked mm. about their new album and say, well, it's like reflecting the modern world we live in, in it, and like computers are bad and people are alienated <laughs> from each other. And actually what they're just saying is nothing. It sounds like they're saying everything, but they're saying nothing. And I could mm. probably be quite easily accused of doing that sometimes myself, but at least I feel like I've tried to to be a little bit more um, insightful, uh, in, you know, into the world that we live in. And it, it's, it, you know, it's again, it's a record which reflects the world that we live in in the sense there is joy. There is joy mm. for the world we live in too. We have wonderful things about the world we live in and there are wonderful things about the technology we've created. Te- I don't think technology is all bad. Listen, if it wasn't for technology, I wouldn't be able to promote this record at all. I can't do yeah. gigs I can't tour. I can't do record store signings. I can't go on TV. All I can do is use social media and do interviews as we're doing right now through Zoom. So thank God mm-hmm. for social media. Otherwise, I would have no career left. So obviously, that's a one. <laughs> that's a wonderful thing. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be aware. You know, be aware of the more insidious side of how technology has. There are so many things that it's done to the human species. Some of them are good. A lot of them are, are not good. I think that's the, that's the message. Yeah, yeah. I think that comes across very well, particularly on. I mean, I'm glad you brought up personal shopper, which I would say is the uh, the centerpiece of the record. It's certainly the longest. Well, it's in the middle, and it's the longest. So yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Yes, I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you look at a track listing from a apologies for this, I'm going to do it in quotation marks. Progressive music um artist such as yourself theoretically uh and you see a kind of nine minute long or nearly 10 minute long song before you press play you sort of think oh this is going to be a very very kind of difficult musically uh, odd journey that we're going on personal shopper reminds me of i don't even know the, the album introspective by the pet shop boys of course where they put all their yeah. 12 inch yeah where they put yeah. all the 12 inch versions on yeah, the album yeah fucking fantastic record very innovative for the time and i was like this reminds me of the kind of thing that the pet shop boys would put on it's like a 12 mix a 12 inch remix right of just a great great pop song yeah um and i mean that was a shock to me i i i love the song i think it's it's so brilliant um uh, yeah, I mean that's not really a question, to be honest. It's no, no, but a it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting observation because again, this comes back to when I was a kid. I bought Introspection when it came out. I loved the the nine mm. minute version of Left to My Own Devices. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, you know uh, th- those kind of tracks were. And the one guy that isn't a member of the band that was obviously a big part of that was was Mr. Horn, Trevor Horn. And the mm. other things that were very important to me in the early eighties were the the complete um, reimagining of what a 12-inch mix could be through what he was doing with the Frankie 12 inches, the propaganda 12 inches, the art of noise 12. It was almost like it wasn't just the, the, you know, the traditional 12-inch mix at that time was like, okay, solo the drums for a few bars, bring the bass (laughs) in, have like one word of the lead vocal, but send it off into a big echo chamber. That was the (laughs) 12-inch mix. And it was bo- it was kind of it was okay it was fun but it wasn't that interesting really and then Trevor Horn came along and completely revolutionised the idea of what an extended dance or twelve inch single could be and again it was this idea of taking the listener on a journey 
In fact, even one of the one of the Frankie Goes Hollywood mixes of Rage Hard was called A Journey into the 12-inch single. It was a deconstruction of what a 12-inch single could be. And I love that. And so that's all part of my DNA too. But mm. another thing that I think Trevor was influenced by, and I was also massively influenced by, were the great Giorgio Moroder disco records from the late 70s. Very yep. often... Um, they would be very, like Donna Summer's Love to Love You, Baby. The first, the title track takes up the whole of side one of that record. And that's yeah. 1975, 1975. And mm. again, I used to hear my parents playing that all the time too. So the idea that a dance track or something that was, was aimed more at the dance floor than it was aimed at the brain could also be fashioned into something that was, you know, had extended form that felt like a continuum felt like a journey and i've always loved that too and yeah you're absolutely right the pet shop boys really took that on board with with that record and some of their other 12 inch mixes and, and i love i love them for that too yeah yeah and and I, I mean as well the i want to talk about the video to personal shopper a little bit as well because obviously i think the great thing about oh, the great thing about pop music in general is that if you do have an idea if you do have something to say um i'm not cussing out metal like i love politically minded metal bands or metal bands with something to say but i think sometimes you know if you listen to napalm death you have to really listen to know exactly yeah. what it is that they're they're trying to yeah. get across where well, i think uh, an idea within the framework of a pop song can be immediately kind of pinged into your brain and when you put it alongside the video that you get for personal shopper as well you're you're kind of left in no doubt as to what it is exactly that's saying and mm. it's um i mean i watched it with my girlfriend yesterday and it's um it really freaked her out, to be honest. In a good way, or is she, at all. is she like, is she like, oh, yeah. never show me that video ever again, sort of thing? Or no, no, I just think she was like, that's just dis quite a disturbing thing. I mean, I it is, it is assumed it would be that, but it is yeah. genuinely quite, yeah. um, quite a disturbing video. I mean, how did that kind of that treatment come around for that video? So the idea with that was to really kind of tap into that that um, black, almost that Black Mirror type aesthetic where mm. you're, it's almost like blackly comic. So mm. it's very entertaining. It's almost funny, but it's also something that, as you say, has a very deep, uh, dark aspect to it too. The idea that consumerism is a compulsion, that every time we buy something, it's a transaction, we're giving, giving away a part of our very essence. Um is is a very black mirror kind of a very sort of sort of thing Charlie Brooker would write about in Black Mirror. It's a very black mirror mirror esque uh, kind of idea. So I think I wanted to tap into that kind of uh, approach where it's not just finger wagging uh, and it's not just preaching. Mm. It's actually something that's genuinely entertaining and funny in a kind of way that a you know a horror movie can be fun and and entertaining mm. and funny. Uh, and it has got an aspect of horror to it. I mean, it is a kind of horrific premise, um, but it's also a funny one. And I think that, in a way, to me, perfectly reflects the, the kind of dual nature of the song and the lyrics too, as we discussed earlier. Yeah. It, the last shot really reminded me of the last shot of, um, I mean, it is different, but the last shot of Just by Radiohead. The, you know, the Just video where they're all lying on the floor at the end? I was like, oh, I didn't know if that was something... It wasn't. I don't remember. Is that the video where there's a guy just lying on the pavement? That's the one, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember what the last shot is, but I remember that being a classic. That's a Jonathan Glazer video, isn't it? I love Jonathan yes. Glazer. Yeah. Um, no, wasn't conscious, but but um, there were a lot more people than me involved in that video. So maybe it was the maybe it was something the director had in mind, yeah. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, that's my favourite video ever. So I was just like, oh, that's a nice little, right. even if it wasn't a nod, a nice little reminder of, right, of right. that. And I was like, oh, yes, very good. Anyway, um, the other person on, I mean, you've already kind of mentioned him a little bit. I thought it was Bill Nighy who was doing the, when I was like, I know that voice who right. kind of uh, says all the, the many things which we should be mm-hmm. purchasing mm-hmm. in the song. And then I found out it was Elton John, as mm. you mentioned before, mm. which is just I'm such a brilliant person to get. I mean, mm. I know, uh, presumably you are a, a fan of massive, of massive work. fan. Yeah, yeah. Massive genius. Yeah. yeah. So that must be quite a, quite a coup for you to be getting Elton on, on this song. It was funny because it was almost an idea that I wasn't prepared to, to, to have fail on me, you know, it's cause it was so perfect <laughs> And I didn't really know who I wanted to do that, read that list until I went to see the Rocket Man movie and and, it, and then the, the light bulb went off over my head. And I thought, this guy is the perfect guy for this. Everyone knows his voice. Everyone knows he loves shopping. He's he's still very engaged with, with modern music. And I thought, this can't fail. I'm not prepared to, for this to fail. I have to get this guy to do it. And in the event, it was actually very easy. And, and I just got the track to him through through a mutual acquaintance. And he rang me up and he said he loved it and he wanted to do it. And it was like, wow, it was as easy, easy as that to get on John on your track. Obviously, it isn't as easy to get on. <laughs> it isn't as easy as that to get on John on your track. It's just the concept was so perfect. And I think he recognised that. Um, so it seemed like it was a match made in heaven. And yeah, what a thrill. I mean, the day he rang me up, I knew he was going to ring me. I had a, a message from my friend. He said, Elton's ringing you in 10 minutes. And I just freaked out. It's because like, oh my God, you know, one of my musical heroes is going to be on the end of the phone in 10 minutes. And sure enough, he rang me. I saw, I got a message through. The phone said, someone's calling me from Antibes in the south of France. I thought, okay, it's mm. got to be him. I don't know anyone else listening to Antibes. And he was incredibly enthusiastic, um, incredibly engaged with the project. He, we worked together on the, on the list, which is as close as I will ever get to saying I've written a song with Elton John. Uh, <laughs> we worked together on the list and there were certain things that I had in my original list that he didn't want to say for various personal reasons. So um, it, it was uh, an absolute unbelievable thrill and one of the highlights of my career, no doubt. Um, to any any time you get to work with somebody who was partly responsible for, you know, investing in you that sort of feeling that music was magic in the first place is obviously going to be an incredible thrill. And I've had it happen to me several times in my life now, you know, whether it was meeting David Gilmore or working with Andy Partridge from XTC or Roland from Tears for Fears. Um, Mm. It's always a buzz for me because I'm essentially still, I still feel like a music fan. I still adore music Mm. and it still, it still creates magic for me. It's great to know that someone like Elton John, who, you know, is like I say, you don't get much bigger. You don't get much more you influential. Don't get, you no. don't get much than than Elton John no. is still willing to, uh, you know, to, to try and to wants to listen to new music. Mm. And I mean, actually, this is a little bit of a slight tangent on my part, but um, I used to work in HMV many years ago and his Elton John's personal assistant would come in every Monday and they every, every Monday on, on Sunday when they got the new releases in, two of each new release would be put into I like heard four or five carrier this. bags. I heard, and so this guy would come right. and he'd, he'd pick them up. And I actually sold these, you know, they were all kind of buzzed through the night before and he'd come and said, oh, I've come for Elton's 
thing. You have like four or five carrier bags of every single two copies of every single every single album and single released. that was released. See that, that I, Monday. I love that. I love that. I mean, I mm. I kind of heard that as a rumor. So you've kind of confirmed that that is actually the truth. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if he still does. I wonder if he still. It's funny because when 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 we finished the track and I sent him the final mix. And he was really happy with it. He said, this is amazing. I love it. And, and then I said, well, I'll send you a copy of the album when it's finished. He says, no, don't do that. I've already ordered it. And he'd already, <laughs> he'd already been onto the website and, and pre-ordered the deluxe edition. What, you know, what a sweetheart. What a sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. I've got tickets for him for December that have been put back a year. I'm praying to God that this thing ends. Yeah. So I can actually, I've never seen him live before. So I'm really, really desperate to see him live. Anyway, that's enough, enough about me. Um, I also wanted to ask you about David Costin as well, Mm. who uh, I know co-produced the record. And I think, I I think I read somewhere that you said he played quite a big part in the, um, in you going down this particular sonic avenue i mean for those people who don't know he's worked with everyone uh, everything everything bat for lashes marina and the diamonds amongst others previously uh, what was it about his work that attracted you to kind of or what did he bring to the album i should say so david i've known for a long long time we both started out in the 90s um about the same time making a living from actually doing music for tv commercials because i when i started mm-hmm. as a professional musician I couldn't support myself with my own music. So I was doing TV commercials and he was also doing the same thing. And we both would be competing for the same, you know, Sony PlayStation job or M&M's job or, you know, <laughs> Domestos toilet flush or whatever it was. We'd be competing. We'd find ourselves competing for the same work. And we got to know each other. And I think there was a mutual respect there. Well, I know there was a respect from my side and, uh, and I think from his too. And kind of followed his career over the years. And the one thing I love about David is that there's an incredible, from listening to the music, you can tell there's an incredible understanding and knowledge of the whole history of music, but it never sounds nostalgic. So this is coming back to what we were talking about earlier, about not wanting to make a record that sounded nostalgic, wanting to make something that sounded very fresh and very contemporary, but at the same time, I I still needed to work with someone that would understand where I was coming from. And because I am a music nerd and I have such a wide range of tastes and I love the whole history of music, it's great to work with someone you can throw out a reference at Elton John or The Cure or Joy Division or Boards of Canada or Prefab Sprout or Miles Davis. And and that other person will immediately know what you're talking about. Um, and David, because he's a similar generation and he has similar kind of music taste to me, would understand all those reference points and also know how to avoid making them sound too obvious and making them sound too much like pastiches, which comes to the second thing I love about David, which is that he he's almost unique in the sense of all the people I've worked with over the years, and I include myself uh, amongst these people, most people, when they hit upon something that reminds them of something they love, get very excited about it. Oh, it sounds like the Beatles. Fantastic. Oh, it sounds like Joy Division. Brilliant. And so you end up being very excited because it reminds you of something that already exists. David's the opposite. So he understands when something reminds him of something he likes, but he'll say, no, we can't do that. It sounds like Kraftwerk. But you love Kraftwerk, David. Yes, I do, but we're not going to copy. So he's like, no, it sounds too much like something we love. Let's find something else we can do that still sounds great, but sounds more uniquely part of your musical world. And that's so refreshing because everyone else I've ever worked with, 
when it reminds them of something they love, they kind of go, let's go that way. Yeah, it sounds like the Beatles. Let's go that way. Rather than saying, mm. it sounds like the Beatles, let's go a different way. And David mm. is that person. And that's why I, I, I really think the Future Bite sounds as unique as it does, because he stopped me from, from being excited when things would remind me of things I liked. I think that's a very, very important thing very, to have. Very, very. Yeah. You know, when, I mean, we on the show last week um, or the week before reviewed the new Smashing Pumpkins album, which was said to be that you know billy corgan has said this is an attempt at a uh, a kind of um modern sounding contemporary record and i just thought well it just sort of sounds like the 80s really i mean that really does just sort of sound like the 80s and i wondered right. how kind of much contemporary music he listened to whereas with this i mean i i think i would i would put those two albums your album and the new pumpkins album together as a kind of seesaw to go well look this is two established artists who have been around for a while one going out of their way to make a contemporary album and the other one um i mean I, like i think you said you, you you're going out of your way to make something that sounds contemporary and could only be brought out now but with no denial of what the kind of the the, the influences around surrounding it are and i think your album does genuinely i mean there's stuff on it i mean i to give you an like i've written down for the review that we're going to be that we we haven't actually recorded yet but i mean i've mentioned a lot of things from over many generations i think follower sounds like sparks quite a lot but then kind of through the prism of the weekend um do you know what i mean kind of melded together and i think that yeah. thing of of really loving classic music but trying yeah. to make it sound like now is I, a really difficult thing to do i think it is I, you know listen i think it's impossible to avoid you know, referring and referencing the music you love. It's impossible. I mean, you know, it's, it's yeah. funny people talk about, sometimes I think people talk about bands like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin like they came from a vacuum. You know, of course, the Beatles started off copying American rock and roll records. Led Zeppelin started off copying Chicago bluesmen. And it's been the case with every great artist over the years that they, they do... Of course they have influences and they do wear those influences sometimes on their sleeve. The trick is to be able to transcend the influences um, and not to sound like you're pastiching something. And it sounds to me, I haven't heard the Pumpkins record, but it sounds to me that that one has fallen on the wrong side of pastiche. And I say that as someone who I think has been guilty of that in the past myself. Um, there have been songs, in fact, there's a couple on the last record to the bone that I think were probably too close to being pastiches of the things that they were influenced by. And so to come back to the David thing, that was very important to work with someone who would stop me from allowing myself to fall into pastiche. And yes, of course you can hear influences. Of course you can hear my musical DNA. But ultimately you come away with the feeling that, oh, you know what? This just sounds like a Stephen Wilson record. At the end of the day, this mm. sounds like a Stephen Wilson record. And that's all I want mm. really from this. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, um, also a couple of other things I wanted to mention. Uh, you recently covered Taylor Swift, mm. uh, the great American dynasty mm. um, on your um, the Future Bite sessions. Uh, great song. Great song. What yeah. was it that made you want to um, cover that song and well, and Taylor Swift in particular? Um, I mean, she's great, basically. Isn't she? she's, she's amazing. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think she's really, I think for me, someone like me, an old rocker like me, she's the, she's the kind of artist that has finally come of age in terms of appealing to me, you know, because mm. the last two records she made, uh, for me, she became an artist. And I want the, 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 
the long story is something would take too long, but the short story is that I wanted to do a song as the last song as part of the Future Bite Sessions, the last song of that that series in 2020. I wanted to do a song by someone else that had come out during the previous 12 months. And when mm. I thought about it, honestly, my favourite song of the year was The Great American Dynasty by Taylor Swift. And I kind of knew that my some of my fans would be horrified by that. And I loved that too. I loved the fact that it would upset, you know, it would be the final nail in the coffin for the old prog rockers that th- already thought the music was sounding too, too different to what they wanted. So the sort of the, the devilish side of me, you know, liked that too. But that wasn't the reason I did it. I did it genuinely because I think she is a great artist. She has proved that. Even to old gits like me, as she's now proved she's a genuinely great artist. And that is a brilliant song. And the lyrics are phenomenal absolutely mm. phenomenal and it it has a storytelling aspect to it which completely resonates with me uh as someone that's come from the background of conceptual rock music the fact she's telling this story and the brilliance of it the fact she puts herself into the story at the end that's the twist uh mm. it's a genius genius song and if anybody can't see past the fact that it's taylor swift that's their problem you know yeah. so there you she's go she's a fantastic storyteller she is. I mean, I think that's something that I've really realised over the, those past couple of records. I, Me too. I, 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 I like her pops, to be honest. I quite like the big pop bangers a lot. Well, <laughs> do you I, know, I, I do like that. Well, stuff. I've gone back but, and um, I have new respect for them. I, at the time, it wasn't like yeah. I li- liked or disliked them. I just kind of, they weren't on my radar. It was just kind of something I blipped mm. out. Taylor Swift for me was was in the same world as Ariana Grande, uh, Dua Lipa, all of these people. I couldn't tell the difference between any of them. I would hear them, you know, on the and she's the one that's come through now and she's on my radar and I'm like, wow, she's actually really amazing. Mm. And now I've gone back and listened to those songs and I can absolutely see they're great pop songs. But it's funny because she comes from the country country music background, background doesn't she? Yeah. And there's a tradition yeah. obviously in country music of telling stories. So it makes perfect mm-hmm. sense that in, mm. in the context of pop music, she still has that country sensibility where she's telling you a story. And it very often has an autobiographical autobiographical aspect to it. So, yeah, I mean, she's mm. someone that's really only come on my radar since the last couple of records. And now I'm like, wow, amazing. You know, and it's, I love it when that happens. It happened with George Michael, you know, uh, all those years ago, he was in Wham! and I had no interest. And then suddenly I'd start hearing songs like um, Jesus to a Child and mm. pr- pr- Praying for Time. And I'm like, wow, hold on. This is actually really good, you know. Uh, and then you, and I love it when that happens, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you also, to, I suppose, to annoy the prog rock purists a little bit as well, you've got um, Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet fame. Well, um, Gary's Gary's kind of honorary well. Gary's kind of honorary progressive rock now because he's in the Nick Mason band, Source Full of Secrets. Oh yes, he is. You're right. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. so he's already right, kind of yeah. been embraced by the, uh, the the progressive rock hardcore, I think. But but yeah, yeah, I mean, another another great you know great songwriter from from that ilk too. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of close up on our chat, Stephen, um, th- this album very much feels like an album made about the future, but the future is happening right now, I think. Um, what do you think the actual future looks like now? Have you ever thought to yourself, right, okay, maybe I need to start thinking about um, 
what the because you know i'm sure it, i'm sure it can get worse than this i know it probably doesn't feel like it sometimes but never i'm never gonna say it can't get any worse after 2016 <laughs> well when trump and brexit happened people went this is the worst and i'm never saying that again but so what do you think the actual future looks like I, I think things are getting better already i mean i hope you agree with me that, that i mean the funny thing is when i wrote the future bites 2018 it was a really bad time. And this is even before the pandemic, mm. of course, but we were going through the yeah, Brexit yeah. thing and we were right in the middle of the Trump administration, which was very depressing to be to be a witness to any of that. Um, and mm. I didn't feel particularly optimistic. And the album is obviously coming out in a period of time when the world has gone through an incredibly traumatic 12-month period. And I think people are starting... At least I am starting to feel a little bit more optimistic. Obviously, we've seen the back of Trump now. We have the vaccinations. There are things I'm optimistic about. You know, one of the things I'm really optimistic, I'm a a bit of a hardcore vegetarian stroke vegan. And one of the things I love about the world right now is that that vegetarianism and veganism is is the fastest growing movement on the planet. What an amazing Mm. thing. What an amazing thing. that My kids are nine and seven and they're vegetarian through choice, at least when they're with with me and my wife, they're my stepdaughters. So when they're with their dad, I can't vouch for what they eat. But certainly when they're with us, they choose to be vegetarian. Amazing. When I was nine and seven, I'd never even heard the word vegetarian. Mm. You know, vegetarianism is something that's grown massively and exponentially in my lifetime. And I think that's a wonderful thing to be optimistic about. And when people like Billie Eilish and Emma Watson are, you know, very pro-vegan and they're kind of spreading that, that message through their young fan base, I think that's an amazing thing. Um, Mm. so I think there are reasons to be a bit more optimistic these days. There's also the whole kind of reset aspect. Is this going to be a reset? Is this going to shock people into living better lives? And, uh, you can, you can kind of see how that, that could be something to be optimistic about in the future. We just have to get Mm. out the other end of this very, very dark tunnel that we've been in for the last, well, if you include the whole Trump administration, four years, but it's, um, Seems like the tide is finally beginning to turn. So I'm I'm a little bit more optimistic than I was when I wrote the material for Future Bites. Let's just say that. Well, that's good. That's good. I, I hope to hear it in uh, in future releases. I'm interested to hear what kind of um, take you will have on the world uh, after this. Who knows? And the, yeah. the kind of things you've been writing about. Yeah. But anyway, thank you very much for chatting to us, Stephen. I'm going to let you go. Now you've been very. Um, very accommodating with your time it's been lovely talking good luck with the record just promise me that when they do the 10th anniversary special edition green splattered vinyl reissue you'll let me write the uh, exclusive liner notes for that when it finally does come out because i'm sure that's definitely going to happen right only if it's a green splattered vinyl edition yeah that's the only way you'll get the job <laughs> yeah because yeah, you've specified <laughs> okay, that fair enough. okay uh, it's been a pleasure speaking <laughs> yeah. to you pleasure speaking to you too Stephen. thanks so much for the interest thanks mate lovely thanks mate cheers bye for now bye